we, we have uh, Mitch Robinson over here, who is, uh, he does a great work with the Chicago Thinker, um, which is the top uh, uh, student newspaper at the University of Chicago. He's a Mises U alum. He's going to be handling the mics today. If you have a question for our panel, uh, please raise your hand, and he's going to be making his way throughout the room. And looks like we've got someone over there who will, uh, will begin. Hi, Steve Matthew from Manchester. Uh, question that I have for you is this is incredible information, and you made a point that uh, you know we really have to educate people. But the big question is how do we get this information out when we are being so silenced, and what do we do about it going from here? Because it's, it's critical. Our, our, our society is being dumbed down so bad, and the information is being filtered by all of the major, whether it's networks or, or, or the social media. How do we combat it? I'll take a stab at that. Um, you know, I, I think if we analyze the last three and a half years, I'm pretty sure uh, I've had more time on the media, personally, in pandemic response than anybody in the federal government uh, anybody uh, who's on the pro-vaccine side. So that will include Fauci, Walensky, Ja, Biden, Harris, Trump, Pence, Burks. Add them all together. I've actually had more media time. That's because people want the truth. I don't ask for a single interview. People want the truth. What we need now is we don't need more media time. It's not like someone's going to turn on TV and suddenly be convinced. We need much more person-to-person -person communication. That's really what's needed. So many people are uncomfortable talking about this. You get into a certain situation, and you know when someone's in the narrative. There's been a term called mass formation as a term. And when you bring up the issue of vaccines in a conversation, we'll say, I don't want to talk about it. That's a signal that they're in, the, they're in the formation. The most effective person I know is who's not far from here. She's in Connecticut. Her name is Jenny Fetterman. She's a pediatric dentist. And she's so fun and cute and nice. And she takes care of little kids. And she's just bubbly. And she said, Dr. McCullough, I can't be on TV like you. I just, I can't do that. She goes, but I can talk to people. So she talks to every one of her patients about the vaccines and their dangers she talks to their family members, and if she loses patience, she loses patience. And then what she does is she talks to every person she comes in contact with. If she was here today, she would hit every one of these tables. And then she would hit the people outside. She'd hit the people serving. Then she'd hit the Uber drivers. And she just keeps going and going. And she goes, hey, I'm Jenny. I'm really worried about my doctor. I'm really worried about these shots. You know, they're just, they turn out not to be safe. I hope you're okay. It's amazing how effective that is. Each one of you should go visit your doctor. Just make a visit and say, doctor, are you, you still supporting these vaccines? You still think they're good? And they're, oh, yeah, yeah, you should take a vaccine. Say, well, doctor, have you taken seven shots yourself? Oh, you, you haven't. Okay, doctor. Well, well why not? Because, listen, I don't think they're safe. I've done my own, I've done my own research. It has to be person-to-person -person at this stage. It really does. And you have to bring it up. As uncomfortable it is, as it is, you have to bring it up. Getting together with like-minded people is important because it solidifies or fortifies our intellectual foundations that we're not crazy. 
People in Australia couldn't leave their house for two years. They had a five-kilometer uh, radius. So I went to Australia. They came out in groups like this in the thousands, and they stayed for hours to just recalibrate to make sure they weren't nuts. Whatever's going on is simultaneous in the world, in the world like this. What can do that? What can be that powerful to affect every single human mind? It's an infectious contagion. People are fighting off, not a virus, they're fighting off the infectious. The solution, though, is, I think, compassion, uh, to have just some critical, compassionate conversations with people and just keep bringing it up sooner. Because you don't want to bring it up at the point of a cardiac arrest after one of these. I mean, because, again, the stakes are high. This is not a joke. These are not minor side effects. And I presume you're, you really mean talking about the vaccines. That's really what it's about. That's what we can do now. Uh, you know, doing something bold. You know, having something on the, the Institute's website. Uh, I know so many people that come up to me, especially people of high financial means. They say, Dr. McCullough, I'm really with you and Dr. Cariotti. I'm really all behind you. I said, terrific, with all your resources, your, your fame and fortune, why don't you go out there and say you don't like what's going on? Well, I want to stay behind the scenes. Yeah. Too many people in Hollywood have come up to me. I said, look at you. You're, I see you all the time in the movies. I want to stay behind the scenes, but I'm really behind you. People are afraid. They are afraid that they will lose something. The key thing to do is to behave like you have zero fear of losing anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I personally think having a billionaire in the White House is a liability because any person of means will naturally try to defend what they have. They're going to defend their corporations, what have you, and they become immediately vulnerable. We need somebody in, I think we need somebody in the White House at all levels who has nothing to lose. Nothing. Just make, just make good decisions with nothing to lose. It's a problem. You know, Peter Bregan, who wrote the book COVID-19, The Global Predators, he believes virtually every billionaire is in on it because they have too much to gain. They're already at the top. And as Aaron pointed out, there's this giant vacuuming up at the top. You know, we need some billionaires to come out and really take control. But when they do, they pay the price. I had a chance to uh, spend time with a super billionaire in Australia, uh, Clive Palmer. He's about 100 times wealthier than Trump, maybe 1,000 times wealthier. And Clive Palmer felt so strongly about this. You know, he felt so strongly about Australia, he became a member of parliament, upper house for a while. Uh, he's done all these great things in his life and, you know, became a multi-multi-billionaire. He felt so strongly about this, he bought an entire stockpile of hydroxychloroquine for the entire country of Australia. The entire country. The Australian authorities seized it and they destroyed it. I'm telling you, worldwide, that's how big this operation is. Worldwide, governments all over the world were serious about making people suffer and become hospitalized and die. Serious. I'll, I'll just maybe a little gloss on that briefly and before we go to the next question. Um, I've been influenced by a guy named Vaclav Benda, who was a collaborator of Vaclav Havel. It's a name more people are familiar with. Havel was a uh, Czech dissident under the Soviet 
regime and then became the first president of the Czech Republic. But, uh, but the other Václav Benda described the need at that time under the so Soviet regime for what he called a parallel polis, these small institutions that are doing the work that others should be doing, whether it's in education or communication or um, uh, economics. I think the Mises Institute is very well positioned because you've been outside the mainstream of economics in this country for a while, as I understand, and you've, you've learned how to think differently and how to create uh, educational opportunities for young people to think differently. So we need more things like this. And basically what he said about the, the parallel polis is any one or another of these institutions could be crushed by the powers that be if, they, if it was specifically targeted. I mean, sad to say, but the, the powers that be could take down the Mises Institute if they wanted to. So what, what is necessary is so many of these things that they can't all be taken out because you know, there's just finite resources and finite attention. So finding small creative ways to you know, from small gatherings like a, like a book club to larger gatherings like this to, okay, let's figure out a way to share information online that doesn't require these big tech platforms that can shut us down. I, I, I think the creative energy of Americans can develop uh, the, a sufficient number of parallel institutions that the truth will find a way to get out there, even if Twitter falls and Facebook falls and all of these things come under, uh, you know, centralized control. And, and just at the individual level, stop self-censoring. I mean, cowardice is contagious, right? But courage is also contagious. And maybe you're the only one at the, at the table at another social gathering that's thinking differently, but, or you think you are, but then you speak up. You say, no, I disagree. And, you know, I went to a talk last week and, uh, you know, have you considered this idea or you considered that fact? And then one or two other people at the table might come out of the woodworks and say, oh, yeah, what Joe said, I'm, I, I agree, too. That doesn't make sense to me either. Uh, I think there's a lot of people in society right now that feel that they cannot say what they actually think, which is a bad situation. This is, again, what happens in, not to be alarmist, but this is what happens in totalitarian societies. Everyone knows that there's a false reality here that we're all supposed to conform to. It's a kind of dream world. It's an ideology. Uh, and we all know that it's false, but none of us feel that we could say anything about it. Okay? You do not want to live in a society where that is the case. So I think every single person has a responsibility to push back against that by not self-censoring. I mean, it's not that you say every thought that comes into your head all the time. There is discretion and there's social propriety and all the rest of it. But, but ask yourself, okay, when I'm biting my tongue in this circumstance, um, is, this a, is this a situation in which maybe I ought to be a little bit more daring? Maybe I ought to push back against the zeitgeist or the, the climate? Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Tom Schenkel. <clears throat> I have a question for both panelists. And the question is, what do you make of the WHO's effort to um, monopolize the deter determination what constitutes a pandemic? They want to um, have a decision by the end of 2024. And I'm very curious to hear what you think about that. I, I, I think the World Health Organizations 
declared aspiration of world dominion over all plants, animals, and humans, and having new policies and a pandemic treaty alliance is confirmation that we have a maniacal biopharmaceutical complex in control right now. It's confirmation of that. It's absolute. They want it binding by international law. Can you imagine that? World Health Organization declares a climate crisis. Therefore, tomorrow, your power grid changes here, binding by international law. The sweeping aspiration for power that's in the open, I think, is confirmation that what Dr. Carietti said is going on. There is a global takeover underway. Mm-hmm. One month into... It's interesting. I was... I was driving the Interstate 5 to work while I was still at the hospital every day during the pandemic. And that was normally clogged with traffic. But after March of 2020, it was awesome. It was smooth sailing. And the usual, you know, smog that drifts in from L.A. uh, into Orange County had cleared up considerably. And I looked at the sky and I said, they're going to they're going to use lockdowns for climate change. And sure enough, Within two months of COVID lockdowns, there were there were academics at major universities and there were politicians in power seriously proposing rolling lockdowns to deal with the climate crisis or, or uh, lockdowns to deal with the energy crisis in Europe. So uh, and climate change had been already reframed as a public health issue. Bracket for a moment your views on climate change, but just look at the headlines over the last about Uh, three to four years prior to the pandemic, climate change had shifted from being primarily an issue about the environment or an issue about pollution to now it's all about population health. And it's always framed in terms of harms to population health. So it's been reframed as a public health issue so that it can be declared a public health crisis. And under this state of emergency, state of exception, where not just the president, but by the way, governors also uh, gained additional state powers uh, under declared a state of emergency state by state. So both at the state level and the federal level, the the declared state of emergency, the underlying legal mechanism that made all of this possible was operating. I think we we have to introduce constitutional checks and balances on the ability of the executive to declare and maintain a state of emergency because the executive is the same one. The executive is the same one who gains those additional powers with that declaration, right? And basically, Biden's delegate, Javier Becerra, former attorney general of California, now secretary of health and human services, is the person authorized to declare a public health emergency at the federal level. Uh, And he answers directly to the president, who's the one who stands to gain by that Declaration. So, of course, we know human nature. These people are going to be reluctant to voluntarily relinquish power, right? Which is why our constitutional system of government was set up the way that it was. So, whether at the state level or at the federal level, okay, maybe the executive can declare an emergency that lasts for, I don't know, two weeks, enough time for the legislature to sort of get together and confirm or ratify it. or maybe we need to define in federal law criteria for what constitutes an emergency, which we don't have. It's a unilateral declaration that answers to no external criteria. If you had external criteria in federal law or in state law, you could have a judicial review process. You could have 
people whose small business is getting shut down sue in court saying we the state of emergency has to be ended because we're no longer meeting the legal criteria, the legal definition for an emergency. So some sort of executive and or legislative check on that system is necessary. We focused a lot on individual pandemic policies and maybe public health reforms and what could be done about that, censorship and so forth. Uh, the, the issue, this issue of the state of emergency has re- received a lot less attention, but I think it's, it's operating at a deeper strata uh, that is very, very dangerous, basically. And it's become normalized in Western countries. I think at last count, we have still 34 active emergencies at the federal level. Some of them have been active for decades, uh, renewed by subsequent administrations, both Democrat and Republican, uh, you know, year after year. There was an uh, attempt to, to handle this. 1976, the National Emergencies Act was passed by Congress, and that it was actually an act to end emergencies. There was pri- previously no mechanism to end an emergency. Most of the emergencies that were continued were economic sanctions of one, it wasn't public health emergencies, they were sanctions that you would hear, like we're, we have sanctions on Iran or sanctions against another country. And um, so it, it was actually used to end the H1N1 pandemic, the National Emergencies Act. But what you've seen is you've seen a, a, a mindset come in in Washington where it wouldn't matter if someone would to invoke one of these acts or not, nobody would pay attention, right? So if someone's subpoenaed, they don't show up. If, if, if documents are declassified, they don't declassify them. We have now gross corruption in the, in the government and no one wants to cede power. And, and so at this point in time, uh, I hate to be pessimistic, but I don't think any law is going to save us. I don't think any attorney general is going to save us. I don't think any new president is going to save us. We have to save ourselves. And this is about, it's really important. This is about the power of the people. What I've said is the only court that's open is the court of public opinion. Yep. And that's the reason why I have been so active in the media and diverse and diverse. I'm on a lot of shows, a lot. I've been on ABC. I've been on all of them. I go across all the platforms, uh, podcast on a different platform, you know, being very diverse in my messaging. But we have to be bold. We have to be relentless and we have to be fearless on losing something. If we don't, if we don't really strike out in a new, very, very determined way, uh, uh, you know, this ship is sailing in the wrong, wrong direction. What's the next question? Oh, uh. <clears throat> thank you. Uh, my name's Chris. I drove here from Maine this morning. I'm glad I did. Um, I'm a retired physician, so I'm a colleague. And, and there are two things um, that I wanted to suggest and see what your reaction would be. Um, one of the comments that Dr. McCullough made was that the House of Medicine is on fire. And you followed up with um, the idea that all bodies during the pandemic had to be cremated. And one of the things that struck me was that that was an obvious way to remove the possibility of autopsy. And your recent study that showed 325 autopsies and that was taken down almost immediately, I think reflects an Achilles heel of the medical industrial complex because it's very hard to argue with a microscope and evidence in a court of law is accepted from autopsies. So I think one thing that we can all do 
is proselytize about the need to demand autopsies in situations where they're needed, where a child dies, where there's any unexpected death. And the second thing I would say is, um, I, I, I was a cardiothoracic surgeon, I had to retire because of injuries, and as a change of life, I went to law school. I'm about to graduate this year and join Syrian Glimsted. Nice, um, nice who's the firm who obtained the release of the V-Safe data that was so compelling. Um, and, and I think one of the things that we can take as an action item for all people, all voters, uh, just about every board of medicine in the country uh, is obligated to act upon and investigate a, co a complaint sent to the Board of Licensure in Medicine. And I think at this point, three years into the pandemic, it hurts me to say this. My father was a surgeon, my grandfather was a surgeon, I come from a medical family, but I think the medical profession has failed. And I think people who continue to advocate for these policies now are complicit. And I think that the people need to file complaints against those licensures and make these sorts of controversies home games, if you will. When we're playing in a court of law, we're playing with the lawyers and they have control over everything. When we play in front of a board of medicine, we at least ostensibly have physicians as the jury and we can appeal to numbers and data and science. And we may have more progress, especially if they're all of a sudden flooded with complaints. People who are from Maine or who are listening to what goes on in Maine probably have heard the board uh, hearings going on with Dr. Nass in which she's trouncing them. And, and I think that if, if we come back at them and make them stand on their ridiculous judgments, basing it on science and evidence, then we have a lot more um, possibility of winning. So I'd like, love to hear what you think about that. Well, thanks for those comments. Uh, the autopsies, especially in the setting of a novel disease, were absolutely critical. In fact, I remember the very first autopsy study done in people, someone who died of COVID, it was done by the Italians, and they discovered that people were dying of blood clots in the lungs, micro blood clots. I mean, that was so important. Uh, I was at a major institution in uh, Dallas, highly ranked, and um, so I have tremendous experience. I was actually in pathology lab every Monday. And the first thing that happened is autopsies were suspended. Pathology lab was suspended. So there was a fear that the body itself would transmit the illness. I distinctly remember that. And that was a, 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 a giant setback. So what we've learned is the autopsies came in after the vaccine one by one by one as case reports. So it's hard to see a, um, a pattern. So I was contacted by a young graduate student at University of Michigan who has a summer project. He says, I want to assemble all the autopsies that were done all over the world. And we, we've completed the project form. I filled it out as a faculty mentor. It got approved by the University of Michigan. So we embarked on this project where we looked at 600 papers where we thought there could be reports, I sifted through it, came up with 325 bona fide autopsies that had findings. We extracted all the findings into evidence tables, and then we had them independently reviewed by people who are familiar with autopsies, pathologists and others, and had a fair adjudication. So we had fair search methodology. We didn't miss any papers, as far as I know, and we had very fair adjudication and determination. The bottom line is 73.9% of all the autopsies done in people who died after the vaccine were due to the vaccine. Now, obviously, people ordered an autopsy because they were suspicious that the vaccine played a role, but that was a very, very important finding. 
So, you know, in the very, the very beginning of the pandemic, things were normal in the academic world. I was the editor of two major journals and widely published. I've published in New England Journal of Medicine, all the major, and I've made major contributions in both cardiology and nephrology. So one of my first papers in COVID was published in Lancet. That was very usual for me to publish in Lancet. And so we took this paper on autopsies, and Nick's the first author, I'm senior author, and we submitted it to Lancet. The Lancet editorial board did not think it was a bad paper. They just did what they usually do. They triaged it to a lower level journal. And, and I said, no, thank you. I want to keep at a top shelf journal. Um, so they suggested the preprint server, which is a way of showing the data out. So we published it on the preprint server. It goes through two sets of checks, what have you. It's on the preprint server. In, in 24 hours, it was getting surges of downloads, surges. The interest was through the roof on this paper. And then Lancet and Elsevier is the parent publishing company. They shut it down in 24 hours. And they said, we're shutting it down because the conclusions aren't supported by the methodology. And they, never, they didn't call. They didn't send a note. They didn't express these concerns in any of the correspondence with the journal. So what happened is a very industrious journalist, I think, at The Ethical Skeptic, captured all this, screenshot everything, captured everything, and this went viral. So I had more interviews. I had more um, uh, uh, interactions on this, and we ended up putting the, the paper up on the European Commission preprint servers in Noto, and we benchmarked it. A typical vaccine paper is getting about 25 to 50 downloads and reads. I think we're approaching 400,000 right now. So the point is censorship backfires. Censorship backfires. Every time somebody is censored, they get bigger. I, you know, I started Tucker Carlson down this journey, and he's actually gotten bigger. I went on Joe Rogan. I kind of blew out all the records he's ever had. Joe Rogan got bigger. And the point is, censorship backfires. But Joe Rogan is right when he put out that video that said that wherever you see censorship, right behind it is a stripping more broadly of your civil liberties. And so that's the reason why every time there's a censorship activity, we need to elevate it and make it go viral. And, and it will. But thank you for those comments. So autopsies are big. Most people dying right now unexpectedly are dying of the vaccine. That's the reality. And so next time you see, hear somebody drop. Now, if they didn't take the vaccine, the first thing the family will do is they'll come out and say they didn't take the vaccine. But when you hear silence, when Jamie Foxx didn't say he didn't take the vaccine and DeMar Hamlin didn't say he didn't take the vaccine and Justin Bieber and L, you know, just on and on and on. You need to know the data suggests this, the vaccine is taking a large number of lives in America. I'm, a, I'm Lily Tang Williams. Actually, I grew up in communist China. So last two or three years, this pandemic gave me PTSD. I feel uh, like I'm back to China again. Yeah. That's why I'm running for Congress here in New Hampshire. I absolutely support medical freedom and the well-informed consent. What is your suggestion? The top one bill you would like to say when it comes to this issue, is that censorship or is that medical freedom? I would like to hear your um, suggestion. I, I think the two issues are inseparable. Censorship is in, totally incompatible with scientific advance and with clinical advances in medicine because science advances by conjecture and hypothesis and testing and refutation. You take a group of credible scientists 
You put them in a room together, what do they do? They argue endlessly. I don't know if you've ever been to a scientific conference or convention, you know, about the methodology, about the salience of these findings, about the research as a whole. They debate. That's how science moves forward. Trying to fixate a current current scientific consensus as unassailable will spell the end of scientific and medical progress. I've filed another lawsuit in California against Assembly Bill 2098, and we got an injunction against that law. That's a law that's basically a gag order on physicians that would empower the medical board to a discipline, including removing the medical license of any physician who contradicts what the law calls the current scientific consensus on COVID, which is never defined in the law, of course, deliberately. And doctors don't know how to interpret that. So to be on the safe side, the, you know, the expectation is I'm just going to parrot and repeat and read from the California Department of Health and whatever they're saying, I'm, you know, never going to challenge that. This is obviously bad for medicine, bad for patients and, and bad for society as a whole. So we're challenging that on First Amendment, 14th Amendment grounds. We're going to, it looks like we're going to win that case. Uh, the granting of a uh, preliminary injunction is hard to get because the court's basically saying, even before you go to trial, just on the merits of your arguments, you're likely to, you're likely to prevail. Uh, so that law, law fortunately has been halted. Um, there are, we are starting to see some victories in the courts. I don't like having to fight in the courts. I, doctors tend to avoid lawyers. We try to stay out of courtrooms, right? Um, <laughs> Prior to suing my own employer, I'd never sued anybody and didn't imagine that I would. But I think we have to fight in the courts now because the fact-finding process in the courtroom at least allows certain, certain things to be aired and certain evidence to be presented if you can get to that stage of a case. I like the idea of uh, patient advocacy happening at the level of the medical boards and those investigations. So I think people have to stand up and start pushing back. I don't see much movement legislatively now. It's hard to rein in the administrative state uh, because it's just so vast. And even a, even a president who wants to... Anyone know how many federal agencies there are? We've named probably a dozen today, right? There's, there's 434 federal agencies in the federal register. Um, some that many Americans have never heard of. CISA, for example, a cybersecurity infrastructure security agency stood up in the waning days of the Obama administration. They were supposed to protect us from attacks on our critical infrastructure, um, you know, cyber attacks or, you know, blowing up a bridge and that sort of thing. In 2017, about a year into their existence, uh, they were, first of all, they decided that our uh, election-related infrastructure was part of their remit. And then they decided that, in, in the words of their former director, Jen Easterly, who's a defendant now in our Missouri v. Biden case, we've deposed her. Uh, in her words, Sizen was responsible for protecting our cognitive infrastructure. Now, you might wonder, what's our cognitive infrastructure? <laughs> um, you know, I know what the electricity grid is, and I know what, you know, a cyber attack might involve, but our cognitive infrastructure is the thoughts inside of your head, right, which need to be protected from bad ideas, like the ones that, uh, you know, Peter and I are, are offering from the stage today. And so Sizen very quickly got into the censorship business, and they became a sort of central hub and clearinghouse for other federal agencies to funnel... Uh, requests actually to, to pressure social media companies 
to censor. So I think we have to fight those First Amendment battles in the courts. But the courts themselves, as was alluded to earlier, do respond to public opinion. Right. We'd like to think that judges are impartial and you know, free from those sorts of biases, but they're not. And censorship will stop in this country when the American people demand that it stops. Mass surveillance of you using digital technologies, which I didn't have time to get into in my talk, but which was done without your knowledge and consent to monitor your compliance with lockdown orders. How many people are gathering at schools and churches during lockdowns? Cell phone data was purchased by the CDC to, uh, to monitor your movements during the pandemic. Same thing happened in Canada, even though Trudeau promised the Canadian people that the Canadian Public Health Agency would not do that. They did it anyways. So these things will stop when, first of all, Americans realize that they're happening, and then second of all, demand that they stop because that's not the kind of society that we want to live in. So all of us have a role, even if we're you know, not giving talks, even if we're not on TV, even if we're not filing lawsuits to challenge some of these uh, egregious uh, overreaches and violations of, of the Constitution. So thank, thank you all. Thank you all for being here. Yeah.